Well, Christmas is near, and while, you know, the retail stores, of course, have had Christmas music on infinite loops since October, uh, followers of Jesus around the world recognize this Sunday as the beginning of Advent, this anticipating the arrival of Jesus. For the next few weeks, what we're going to be doing in our worship time on Sundays is centered on celebrating the incarnation of Jesus, uh, the birth of God in the flesh, and focusing on his return, uh, which is nothing short of the redemption and the renewal of all creation. So that's a pretty big deal. Um, Within gatherings of churches around the world, people are going to retell the story of how God humbled himself and was born as a human being named Jesus in the town of Bethlehem, which literally defined the turning of the age because you've got, you know, all of the dates BC before Christ. And then after his birth, you've got Anno Domini, the year of the Lord and uh, AD. And so it's literally like, you know, beginning of the second age in Middle Earth or something like that. But uh, so, uh, yeah, I mean, it's a big deal. Like Jesus was born. And, you know, in our congregation, Jen, like I mentioned just a minute ago, Jen is down there leading the children and the youth in many pageants, um, not only hearing the story, but acting it out and getting the kids in character, which is a great way to learn. Um, And then on Christmas Eve, Elizabeth Holland is going to be uh, leading whatever kids want to and crazy costumes that they come in, uh, in a build a pageant, which again, will be a retelling of the birth story, but with actions and with kids involved. And it's just, it's a, it's that time of year where we retell the story and we try and live into it. Jesus, it seems, right, is the focus and ought to be the focus of this Christmas season. But he's not the only figure that gets attention out there in the world, right? Just just like at Easter time, which is about the resurrection of Jesus, you know, I think the Easter bunny gets a fair amount of attention. Um, So so at Christmas, uh, you know, the character that typically you see a lot of out there is Santa Claus. And I I was just thinking, like, if you were an alien from another planet and you just came to America right now and you were at this time of year and you were like, I wonder what is the big deal with this time of year with all these lights and stuff, I'm not sure how you could like leave and not think Santa Claus was like the main deal in, in America right now, right? Um, the, the popular movie Elf, which I love, our family watches it every year, um, has in it though the major plot line that requires faith in Santa in order for Christmas to be saved. I mean, that's, that's, that's just the plot of the movie. Um, several years ago, our family was on a drive to see Christmas lights, as we often do. They actually have apps now where you can find the best ones around town. We were up uh, in the Silver Beach area and drove by this house. Must have had like 25 lit figurines in there. The centerpiece was a massive Santa sleigh with reindeer that they had kind of going off the ground. It was so cool. Um, they had just mixed in this cacophony of characters. They had Snoopy, um, Charlie Brown. Snoopy was on his house. They had the whole Snoopy house. It was cool. They had Star Wars figures, Darth Vader lit up with a Santa hat on. Classic, right? Uh, And scattered among them off to the side was a crash with Mary and Joseph and baby Jesus, just one among many in this front yard. Is Jesus just another character among many who is part of the lore of this season. I wonder if an alien would think that if they had gone over that house in uh, Silver Beach. Oh, that just must be one of the other characters that these humans have in their Christmas time lore. 
you might be thinking, I mean, you're in a church and I'm looking around, I don't see a lot of visitors, right? So you're thinking to me, come on, man. I mean, we know that the Grinch and all of these things are just fictional characters and Jesus is real, common sense, right? Well, not necessarily. A, a poll, for example, in the UK in 2020 said that 15% of the population don't believe Jesus was an actual historical figure. 13 more percent in 2020 in the UK said that they don't know for sure. So that's a quarter of the population of England that is unsure whether or not Jesus existed at all. Now in the United States, 92% of people say they believe that Jesus was a historical person, but these numbers just tell us what people think, right? They don't tell us whether or not something is true. Consensus agreement might suggest something is, to, is true, but relying on groupthink, like that doesn't, that's ridiculous if you base your whole like belief system on what everybody else thinks, right? Um, my daughter Stella had a betta fish that uh, dried, died tragically early, it was an early death, and uh, we took that betta fish and buried it under the backyard cherry tree, I know right where it is, we made a little grave for it, it was a whole thing. Right now, every single person in the world could say, we don't believe that Stella had a betta fish named Noki. And they wouldn't be right. It wouldn't matter if like 99.9% .9 of the world said, we don't believe in Noki the betta fish. I buried the damn thing. I know it's real, right? So, okay, so just because a lot of people agree on something doesn't make it true. You know, there's a difference between believing something or believing that someone existed and having good reason to believe it. I mean, people believe all sorts of things. You know, there's thousands of Americans that still think the earth is flat. Did you know, like, like, uh, oh, like how many people I'll just have side conversations with that are all in on a multiverse theory? Don't even get Wasserman started. But like, you know, you scratched against the surface. Like, there might be good reasons for believing that, but usually their reason is I saw a Marvel movie or Into the Spider-Verse, and I'm convinced because this solves a lot of problems. If there's infinite universes, then we don't have to solve the fine-tuning question, right? And then you just like, you want to believe it, but you don't have any reason to. You're not an astrophysicist or a philosopher or anything except for Ryan. You can believe whatever you want. I know this neighbor of mine who... Um, who will often say things like, you know, I just asked the universe and such and such a thing happened for me. Or maybe something bad will happen in this person's life and they'll say, well, I guess the universe wanted to happen, ha have that happen to me. And I, and I don't know this weight neighbor well enough to really like dig in, but I sort of, I sort of want to ask like, so tell me about your relationship with the universe, right? Like, how do you know them? How, how do you speak to the universe without any kind of text or guidance or conversation? Like what makes you think the universe is a person that talks to you and gives you things or takes them away? It's just amazing to me, the, the thought system without any reason to, to believe it, right? So why do I bring this up at all? Because we're approaching Christmas and the celebration of the birth of Jesus and as the church, like our hope is based on the belief that not only was Jesus born in real time and in a real place, but that he was God incarnate. That 
he inaugurated the inbreaking kingdom of God, that he had disciples, that he loved people, and he loved all sorts of people, not necessarily people that loved him or that loved each other. And we believe that part of his mission was not just to inaugurate God's kingdom and not just to teach and to transform individual lives, but to die for the sin of the world and then defeat death and rise again. And that means new creation and resurrection. And that is a load of stuff to believe. If Jesus didn't exist, if he was not who the scriptures say he was, then we're all wasting our time. And I do not like to waste my time. There's other things I could be doing to chase the American dream or have a life of affluence. Like if Jesus isn't who he said he was, it's a waste of time. Here's the problem, or rather, here's the good news. We have very good reason to trust that Jesus was real, that his life and his teachings are well-documented, that his death and resurrection impact all of humanity in every single way. So for the next few weeks, we're going to be asking the question together, is the Christmas story believable? Is it believable? Now, I am unashamedly basing my sermon series on the work of a scholar named Rebecca McLaughlin. And she wrote this wonderful book that Ian's gonna put the picture up so you can copy it down if you want. Is Christmas unbelievable? Four questions everyone should ask about the world's most famous story. She writes a few other books that are uh, also a kind of an apologetic type thing, but this book is like six, 59 pages long. It's a short little book that's cram-packed of good stuff. And not only am I basing my sermon series on this book, but I am actually, the, the, the subjects of my week-to-week messages are based on her outline, on her, um, her chapter outline. So I'm just giving full credit to Rebecca. She's a fantastic thinker, and um, she writes a lot of other great things that you should check out, and she has a website that you should check out. Little videos, like one-minute apologetics are really kind of cool. And I feel like her little book of 59 pages took several seminary classes of mine and condensed them into this tiny little thing, which is a special sort of genius, I would say. So anyway, thank you, Rebecca. Um, I'll give her all the credit if you hear anything good. I am allergic to plagiarism. It keeps me up at night that I would not quote somebody, so I'm just letting you know even the structure of my sermons is based on her work. So there we go. Okay, for the rest of this preaching moment tonight, uh, I am going to offer what I think are some good reasons that we can trust that Jesus was more than just another holiday figure on someone's front lawn, more than just another character, a man of mythology, but an actual historical figure. Notice that tonight, I am not jumping to any claims of Jesus being the Messiah or the Son of God. These sermons will sort of build on each other as the weeks go on, okay? So is it believable to believe that Jesus, is it reasonable to believe that Jesus is a real person of history? Well, the greatest witness, of course, that we have to Jesus' life, we actually have four biographies of his life, the, the four Gospels. Um, two of those Gospels actually speak of the birth story. But before diving into our own sacred text, because if I was trying to convince someone outside the church of, you know, I wouldn't use the text of my people, right? Uh, who, you know, we have a reason to believe that Jesus. So I, we're not actually going to look at the Gospel text right away, 
all right? And we're gonna look at some texts that occur outside the Bible. And the first man I wanna talk about who wrote something is Publius Cornelius Tacitus. And Ian's gonna put his beautiful bust up there. Look at that, oh, this guy, what a guy. Um, yeah, there he is. And he get, actually has his own coin. We can check that out. Uh, there he is. Look at Tacitus right there. So Tacitus lived uh, between 56 AD and 120 AD. He was a Roman politician, but he's most known for being a famous Roman historian. And I'm particularly drawn to Tacitus as a source of evidence for Jesus's birth or, or existence because Tacitus hated Christians. <laughs> he has like zero uh, uh, skin in the game for, for, for making up Jesus. Um, he doesn't like him at all. He doesn't like Christians at all. In fact, in some of his writings, he calls Christians a disease on the Roman Empire because they refuse to worship other gods and goddesses and they refuse to worship the emperor. So one of his most famous histories, a 16-book collection called The Annals, Tacitus writes about the great fire in Rome that happened in 64 AD. This is a famous event. Um, and the people, the Roman people, blamed Emperor Nero for this fire. And Nero tried all sorts of things. He tried to give gifts. Um, a lot of times, emperors in those days would just bring loads of, of nice foods to small communities, and the people would be like, yeah, we like you now. And, and then, or if that didn't work, he would, he would host games in different Roman cities, and he would pay for it all. You know, he'd have people in these games, and be like, Hunger Games in the arena, that kind of thing, and people go crazy over that stuff. And none of those things were working. And so Nero came up with the idea that we'll blame these stupid Christians, and we'll say they caused the fire. And so he had Tacitus, or he had, he had the different uh, Roman governors and things um, uh, persecute Christians, and, and Tacitus was the Roman historian that wrote about these things, right? Um, he mentions that Christians follow a Jewish man named Jesus the Christ who was crucified under the reign of Tiberius Caesar. Interesting. He also detailed that this crucifixion occurred while Pontius Pilate was the governor of Judea. Okay? So Tacitus, in this historical work that he does, he triangulates the Jesus' crucifixion under the reigns of both Tiberius, who was the emperor between AD 14 and AD 37, and Pilate, the governor uh, uh, of Judea, between 26 AD and 36 AD. And so we can deduce not only did Jesus exist, but he was crucified by the Romans in the same time window that the Gospels all say he was crucified. Okay, that's just interesting facts. Like this guy just writes like Jesus is a real dude who was really crucified by the real Romans. And it's just in, in history. It has, it's not a religious text at all. In fact, he would love to find reasons to not have Jesus around. Okay. So uh, the next guy I want to talk about is, uh, oh, you're going to love this name, uh, Gaius Plinius Cassilius Secundus. We don't ever have to say that again. It's just Pliny the Younger. And here's Pliny the Younger. Uh, oh, he's got some nose problems. I think he had a melanoma or something. I don't know. Uh, so Pliny the Younger, he's not to be confused with Pliny the Elder, also a fantastic Russian River IPA. No, it's Pliny the Younger. Uh, and he was a contemporary of Tacitus. He's best known for his career in politics. And, and during the years of 109 to 111 AD, he was the governor of this place, a kind of a dual region called Bithynia and Pontus in the region of Turkey. So Pliny the Younger is a governor in Turkey. And of particular note, 
Pliny the Younger wrote to Emperor Trahan asking for advice. This is a great letter. I've actually got the the whole thing in a book at home. It's fantastic reading. Uh, How do you punish Christians the best, Emperor Trahan? I need some advice. These guys are driving me crazy. And, And so, because they're not worshiping any of our gods and goddesses, and they're not bowing down to your to your statue. They're not, you know, worshiping the emperor. And so Trahan, you know, he writes back, you know, giving him ideas on various forms of torture and public execution from time to time if they wouldn't kneel. So he's like, bring them out in public and force them to kneel to my statue or make sacrifices to the gods and goddesses. And if they don't do it, kill them in public or torture them in public, right? Now, in this letter, Pliny the Younger describes some of the habits of these Christians. It really ticks him off. And just particularly, they gather on the first day of the week. They're so weird. They gather early in the morning, and they sing hymns to this Jesus. They sing hymns to this Christ as though he's a god. This is the writings of of Pliny. He talks about this movement of people that uh, started with this first century Jew named Jesus and it is spread, you know, he's like, it's spreading like a disease among men and women of all classes. And he says that Jesus was executed between 26 and 36 AD. And then he's worshiped as a God. Like what kind of weird movement is this? Once again, a historical document from a man who had no love for the church, claiming that Jesus was a real historical figure who was truly crucified and then worshiped as a God by a growing, an increasingly growing number of people. So much so that he, you know, what governor wants to bug the emperor? What you want to do is to have the emperor never have to check in on you. You're doing such a good job because all these dudes want promotions. The fact that he has to write the emperor for help and advice on how to like suppress this growing group of, of Christians who, who worship a dead Jewish guy, it's, it's just a problem. Now, I could keep going and going. There's all kinds of writings and evidence like this. I'm just going to mention one more. And this is from a man named Flavius Josephus. Here's his picture. Um, Got the profile view. Maybe there's a mugshot. I'm not sure. But Josephus, Josephus was a military commander for the Jewish army, and he was a historian. And he was born in 37 AD and died around 100 AD. He was the leader of the Jewish military in the region of Galilee. And they rebelled against Rome in 66 AD, and the Romans crushed the rebellion. And there, in the face of the Roman opposition, Josephus played turncoat, and he surrendered, and he changed allegiances. And he became, he became a historian for the Romans. And in particular, you know, this is such a turncoat move. He was the interpreter for General Titus who then sacked the temple of Jerusalem. So he was the interpreter telling them like basically how to get in and to, to squash Jerusalem. It, pretty bad stuff. So anyway, he's best known to, to us at least for this giant work called the Antiquities of the Jews. And in chapter 20, I'm sorry, book 20, chapter 9, verse 1, Josephus is writing like about something completely different. He's writing about like all of these Jewish leaders at that time. And it's just in passing, but let me just read it to you. He's like, Bestus is dead. Albinius was out on the road. So, so Annas assembled the Sanhedrin of judges and brought before them the brother of Jesus, who was called the Christ. And this man's name was James. 
and some of his companions. So he's just writing like in passing in this history about the brother of Jesus named James, right? And and he mentions Jesus in that passage. So in this text that's written by a non-Christian, someone with no internal motivation to make up the existence of Jesus, uh, he happens to be writing about these Jewish leaders. He mentions Jesus, who is also called Christ, and Jesus' brother James, which corroborates with the books of the New Testament, such as Acts and the Epistle of James. And then in book 18 of Josephus's Antiquities, he also mentions John the Baptist, yet another matter-of-fact documentation of key figures in the life of Jesus, also mentioned in Luke's Gospel in the first chapter. So the point of mentioning just even these three examples of non-biblical authors is that Jesus was known outside the church as a real historical figure who was born and who lived and who died in Palestine under the Roman Empire. And these dudes write about it like it's just a matter of fact, it's part of the history that we're writing, right? Uh, These sources also show us that Jesus was worshiped by Jews and non-Jews as God himself. They tell of a growing and expanding movement of Jesus followers who refused to worship any other gods and goddesses and yet were some of the most life-affirming, non-violent, self-sacrificial people in the known world. Oh, to be known like that today. If the church was known like that today, that's a whole other sermon series maybe. Another time? Next week, we're going to get into the question of whether or not the scriptures that we have are reliable source documents for for believing the Christmas story. But one thing I'll just say in this moment is that these extra biblical accounts tell us a lot more than just a few lines about the historicity of Jesus. They also tell us a lot about geography of Palestine, place names, dates of significant events, who was in charge and who governed this and who ruled over that. And they also tell us what these people were like. Turns out Pontius Pilate wasn't a great guy. We already knew that from the Bible, but oh man, you should read some of these historians' accounts of him. Well, all of these details are important to us because when we get into the biblical texts, we see that the gospel writers and the writers of the epistles knew what they were talking about. They know the geography well. They know the dates well. They know the rulers well. It's affirming of the text. And like when Luke opens his gospel, he does it as an ancient historian would open a a letter, right? So he writes, insomuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us from those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. It seemed fitting for me as well, um, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, O most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you've been taught. Luke's descriptions of dates, figures, of the manger scene, the locations of cities and towns, all line up with the source documents outside of Scripture as well. In at least one instance, Luke lists a census, right, the one that brought Jesus and Mary to Bethlehem, uh, that Josephus doesn't seem to know about. Josephus doesn't write about this census. But it makes sense for the locals who were affected by the census to know more about it than Josephus, who was writing these things at 
from a distance and was born 40 years after these things even took place in the, in the first place. The point is that there are historical markers that root the birth story of Jesus in history. This is no myth. This is no legend. It's no fantasy. Jesus was a historical figure. And what does the history say? Well, before we even get into fantastic claims of virgin birth, angel choruses, and all of these miracles we read about, the claim of history is that Jesus existed, and that he was with all kinds of different people. That his life disrupted the lives of the powerful. That he was open to outsiders. Magi, pagans from the East came and worshiped him. That he was for all people. From his very birth, he had shepherds come and re receive the news about, about the, the, the gospel, and they came uh, to his birthplace. Is it believable that Jesus was born in Bethlehem at the turn of the age? Yes. Yes, it is. But it's not just believable because a bunch of other people believe it. It's not just believable because the people in this room believe it. It's believable for good reasons and strong evidence. And I hope you have more confidence in why you believe what you came here believing maybe already. Because our faith has solid, reasonable grounding. You know, today is the Sunday of Advent hope. May we be filled with hope that if we can trust the historical existence of Jesus, that he truly is what the scriptures say he is, good news of great joy for all people, the Savior who is Christ the Lord, the Savior for you and me, and the Savior for the world.